I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Blonde, the long-awaited fictionalized biopic about the life and work of American screen icon Marilyn Monroe is available to watch on Netflix right now. We're breaking it down and talking about Monroe's work, including her best film in this conversation. Amanda. The film Blonde. Mm-hmm. Did you like this film? <laughs> do you do any push-ups this morning? <laughs> you do any stretching? You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Let's get a workout uh, in. Yeah, no, I did not like this film, <laughs> as you know, because we got to see it together, which that that part I enjoyed. That was very exciting. And we sat through all three hours of this film and in, in a screening room. We did see it on a big screen, which I think uh, is crucial to actually having completed the film. And then we did get to do that exciting thing, which was like we immediately started talking about it. And pretty rare for us. Like we stayed in our seats. I did enjoy this. It's yeah, funny that you said that. Pa- this part was really nice. And we, we talked about this during Don't Worry Darling. We've talked a lot about this in the last few episodes of like the thing of, of talking about movies which, you know, is what we do on this podcast, but having movies to discuss and argue about and get involved with is really fun. And I'm excited for that. And boy, do I have a lot to say about this. Yeah. So I didn't really like this film that much either. There, I know we're in no partial credit this year, but I'll just, I'm going to foreground the conversation by saying that this movie is written and directed by Andrew Dominic, Australian filmmaker. I've been a pretty big fan of his three previous narrative features. That includes Chopper, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and 2012's Killing Them Softly, which was starring Brad Pitt. Um, This film is also an adaptation, much like Killing Them Softly, of a novel by Joyce Carol Oates. Dominic is an incredible visual stylist. And this movie, in its way, is an incredible visual achievement. And that's basically where my praise stops for the movie. There's total commitment to, to the vision of what he's doing, but I think as we explore what it is that he's doing will pretty quickly come to the conclusion that it's pretty brain dead and kind of disappointing and maybe even a little troubling what he's trying to accomplish and say about Marilyn Monroe, about femininity, about middle century America and trauma. And, you know, a lot of it is based very closely on the text. I have not read this novel by Joyce Carol. You have at least read some of this novel. I read about 200 pages and then I stopped. And part of the reason I stopped is... Part of the reason that I did not enjoy this film, which is I think the the animating idea, if you can call it that, is I find pretty limiting intellectually, but certainly cannot support a three-hour film. But I want to go back to no partial credit, which I, I still don't want to give partial credit, but I do think this is a case where it does look good. He is a very accomplished visual filmmaker, and I think the emphasis and uh, overemphasis on the visual aspects of this movie as a storytelling aspect are to its detriment. So it's mm. it's not even, it looks good, but to me, it's this the, the emphasis and the service of the 
the collage and the and the visual undermines what it's trying to do or maybe doesn't undermine it maybe just speaks for itself but I don't even think it deserves partial credit well it, f- it feels like he spent a lot of time imagining the visual execution and yeah. maybe just accepted whole cloth what was on the page in the novel and translating that as opposed to kind of interrogating some of the psychological underpinnings just so w- w- people know what we're talking about obviously the film is about Marilyn Monroe there's painstaking efforts to recreate some of Marilyn's most famous parts the films, I mean, some of the recreations look extraordinary. This is not like Forrest Gump territory. It is like inch for inch, moment for moment, capturing gentlemen prefer blondes and some like it hot. I mean, Anna de Armas, who, whose name we have not yet said, who stars as Marilyn in this film, really transformed. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary what they, they're able to accomplish. Yes, and it doesn't look schlocky, and it doesn't venture into the territory that a lot of these recreation biopics often fall into, which is sort of SNL parody right. imitation. Like, it, it is suddenly like you're living in this 1950s world. And then likewise, when we're seeing Marilyn's, you know, personal life and the life that we don't know about necessarily, from photographs maybe that have been published, the recreation mm-hmm. there is exceptional. And then there is there are a lot of visual choices that are made from changing the aspect ratio of the story to shifting from black and white to color to changing film stocks. There are a lot of very aggressive choices in the storytelling to kind of keep you unbalanced, off balance, as you essentially plunge into the psyche of, at least through the eyes of this film, a very damaged person. You know, a person who's been really traumatized by everything in their life from the very beginning of their life all the way through Um, Marilyn Monroe's tragic end. It's a hard movie to talk about in some ways because the novel itself is about Marilyn Monroe, but not necessarily, not legally about. It's an imagining of what Marilyn's life was, but uh, the beats are almost word for word things that she participated in or people that she actually was married to or interacted with, with some exceptions. And so I think this is that unusual case where a lot of people probably especially younger people who don't know as much about Marilyn will watch this movie and think, well, that's definitely what happened. Right. And that's not the case. And that's not necessarily a bad thing that there are necessarily, um, you know, historical elisions going on here. We talked about this with The Woman King. Like, movies don't have to be historically accurate. The ironic thing about that, though, is there's so much effort put into recreating the visual aspect that on the one hand, it feels like this documentary approach. And on the other hand, there are these wild liberal choices about describing what she did and how she lived and what she went through that I don't want to say I found unnerving. I just found like a little confusing. I don't know why there's so much fealty to this story when the world knows that this is a movie about Marilyn Monroe. Do you know what, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, there are real historical beats. I mean, both of her marriages, or at least two of her marriages to Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller, which are the 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 famous ones, if you know anything about Marilyn Monroe, you know those happened, um, are included in this film. All of the, her most iconic roles are included in more kind of snapshot visual way, but like you see all of them, as you mentioned. Uh, JFK, the the president, is in this film. He is. And, you know, there has been a lot of speculation that I think is pretty much confirmed that they had an extramarital relationship, which uh, is definitely suggested. It is rendered. It is rendered (laughs) in this film. We'll we'll come back to it. But, you know, there is the historical record of happy birthday, Mr. President. So, you know, we know that they were associated. So it has things that that happened. And then it has just a tremendous amount of um, psychological projection mm-hmm. and or or conjecture mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what all of these things that we know happened to Marilyn Monroe must have created in the person and what was going on behind the screen and if you want to be generous also trying to figure out the dynamic between what it means to to be Marilyn Monroe and to create this person and so you know obviously she was born Norma Jean Mortensen and there is a dynamic in the film between Norma and Marilyn. And Marilyn is almost this otherworldly, like, projection. She is, like, the 30-foot high. The alter ego superhero. Yeah, yeah. cut out from Seven Year Itch. And I do think that even a completely uninformed viewer could understand that these are the things that happened and then 
this is maybe not an estimation of how she's feeling, but this is a like a recreation of of feeling. This is a a guess in part because the movie is so focused on the psychological experiment. You're basically just made to feel like Marilyn Monroe for three hours yeah. or this movie's idea of of her and what that experience would be. Right. There's no way to know if this is actually how she felt yeah. or even specifically some things that she experienced um, because there's no proven record of that. There is only conjecture. It is like a psychological reimagining. At times, it, it is a direct like point of view right. with the camera through her yes. eyes or through other parts of her body, um, somewhat <laughs> unnervingly. Uh, this is a very strange project in general. It's been um, a long, long time in the making. It's been almost 12 years in the making for Andrew Dominic. It's been a passion project ever for him ever since the novel was published. I'm having a hard time understanding what it is about Marilyn Monroe that interests him because he he has said on the record that he's not really a big fan of her movies. And we will talk about her as a performer mm-hmm. and kind of what made her special and not just what made her famous. Um, and I'm not sure that he necessarily like cares about Hollywood at this time in any meaningful way, even though the movie is very much about the sort of dark side, the underbelly of what happens in Hollywood and how people rise in Hollywood. And, you know, he's obviously not a woman. And Mm -hmm. the movie is very much about not just one woman's trauma and one woman's struggle, but it's, you know, it's projecting a lot of sort of representational, decade-spanning experience onto a lot of women, honestly, not just women in Hollywood, but across the board. And there's something like a little discomforting about this guy. He's making a lot of assumptions, I would say, in the execution of this movie. And so there is obviously a grandeur to Marilyn Monroe and a a romance and and a kind of fire, right? There's like, she's she's such a sexy person. She's such a sensual person. So the titillation is obvious, but from an intellectual perspective or an artistic perspective, I still don't really get what was interesting to him about this other than, frankly, like the trauma porn yeah. that he is puts on screen. I mean, that's the thing. If if you could sense what was interesting to him, if you if there were larger ideas, I, and it's a rich text, right? I mean, obviously, her iconography or her place in American history and not just Hollywood history, this idea of the blonde, which you know, she didn't invent, but certainly I like our modern understanding of it. She idealized the blonde bombshell. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And these ideas of um, celebrity and fame and and certainly also trauma and childhood experience and and your relationship with your family and um, objectivization and, you know, all of these things. There's a lot to work with. Does he work with any of it in this film? Like, I, I don't really think so. And so my objection is not the the effort or even that it's a man trying to understand all of this it's that the only understanding i could really glean is like wow a lot of terrible things happened to her and let's just watch them in succession for 3 hours with absolutely no break it is as you said trauma porn like sadistic and kind of one note yeah that's the thing it's it's to me cuz to me it's not the the sadism that bothers me as you know i love sure. nasty kind of dark movies that leave you with a pit in your stomach at the end. I actually love that, ex- yeah. that feeling and that experience. And I didn't hate the movie because it kind of kept m- my eyes wide open as I was watching it. But I, it felt like, and the reason I raised the fact that he's a man is because it feels like he literally doesn't have access to that bigger idea. Like, it feels like he is unable to kind of pierce the outer skin of the story of Marilyn Monroe. And this is a person who, it's not just that we have lots of evidence of who she was on screen. She's been portrayed on screen by a number of actresses at this point. I mean, probably most recently um, by Michelle Williams in My Week with Marilyn, which is about the, the production of the, the Prince and the Showgirl. But, you know, I remember the Mira Sorvino HBO movie that was starring her and Ashley Judd that I think actually more effectively rendered this kind of duality between Norma and Marilyn and the idea of invention. And this movie just really doesn't give Marilyn Monroe a lot of agency. And it gives her none. <laughs> and I don't really know why, because you could certainly make the case that she was victimized in the early stages of her career because she was sexually assaulted. It's presumed that she was sexually assaulted by producers in the early stages because that is often what happened in the studio system. To get on contract, you were subject to the casting couch. There are so many horrific stories over the years about the way that that worked. It, it, maybe it maybe it's an unfair, unreasonable assumption, but many people understand that to be the case for many of those bombshell actresses in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. 
But also throughout her career, she constantly was claiming independence and inventing new spaces for herself to succeed and pursuing filmmakers and starting a production company. Like there, this is a person who has actually like quite a complex and dynamic sense of per- professional agency, at least. Mm-hmm. The movie is like not interested in any of that stuff. And in fact, when you read interviews with Dominic, which I have found like pretty frustrating and at times <laughs> nauseating. Yes. Um, he literally is saying like, I wasn't interested in that. Yeah. Why not? That's actually more notable than the fact that she was abused, which we know because everyone knows what happened in Hollywood for 70 years. Yeah, I I mean, I, I have no idea why not. And the movie, even when it does show those kind of more iconic, like high profile moments or like Diamonds are a Girl's Best Friend, for example, is just, I think, shown in the background. Uh, Some Like It Hot, which is, we'll talk about it more, one of my favorite movies and one of her, my favorite of her movies. She is shown like having a tough time on set it's it's not like a comedic triumph it's you know it's kind of in the i believe what andrew dominic referred to as the dead doll phase of the movie which that's an interview and deadline you can do that interpretation yourself um happy birthday mr president is not in the film uh some other jfk incidents are so it's never showing her in glory it's never even tangoing with this idea of her as this, uh, you know, American icon, if only to to then break that down. You don't get the high. You only get the low. And and I That's will right. say, not in defense, but I mentioned that I read about 200 pages of the Joyce Carol Oates novel, and then I quit. I quit because this was my experience of reading the book, and it was just grim and relentless. You know, it starts as a child, and the interpretation of her childhood presented in this novel and then in Andrew Dominic's film is really tough. Brutal. Just just oppressive. Yeah. And um, a a disturbed mother, played by Julianne Nicholson in the film, and an absentee father. Ultimately, the movie doesn't include the foster care um, stuff, but there was a a 100-long-page foster care experience in the novel, which was also like very difficult to read. So at some point I I found the like oppressive grimness of the novel like too much. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't have another 600 pages of this in me. So if he's using this as a text, I guess he's using this as a text. Yeah, he stayed faithful for sure. It's 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 pretty evident because I don't know why you would run like make the movie this way if yeah. you weren't staying faithful to something that had this tonality. I mean that open that opening stretch is kind of an interesting thing to break down in this conversation because on the one hand it's really visually accomplished and kind of amazing and a little and terrifying. You know, Julian Nicholson plays her mother as a paranoid schizophrenic and it's we sort of like jump right into the mass delusion of being raised by this woman. It's very scary. You know, Marilyn or Norma Jean, I should say, is very young. She's maybe five, six years old. And when we when the film starts and Julian Nicholson's character is fully melting down, which is somewhat accurate to the reporting. But, you know, Marilyn Monroe's mother was married three times. She had many children. I think she had six or seven mm-hmm. children. Marilyn Monroe was raised by her for a stretch and then was sent to foster care and then eventually to an orphanage, which is sort of told in this story. But there was um, this idea of the lone, lonely girl mm-hmm. that Dominic keeps returning to. And we see this later in the film when she's at her own film premiere surrounded by adoring fans and she feels utterly lonely. That's not exactly how she was raised. That's not exactly what her life was. It's a small note, but it's a relevant note because it's sort of like there's all of this work that goes into recreating things, but then there's also all of this work to kind of cast aside inconvenient details of the life that I find curious. And it's because there is just this relentless pursuit of that grimness that you're talking about. And I don't know what it's serving. And also just this really, I guess, simple, if you want to be generous, and and I find to be really limiting idea of, and limiting sounds ungenerous, but... The point of the movie, as as you said to me afterwards, you were like, what if it was really this simple? Is that she had a truly horrific, completely tragic childhood, and that just messed her up for the rest of her life, you know? And, and also simultaneously went on to become the most significant sex symbol in American history. Right, right. But that, you know, it all stems from this was just, things were were grim 
and kind of irreversible from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And we're just living with the consequences of that for the rest of her life and the rest of the, her movie, the, the movie. And you were like, what if that is really how it was? And I think, honestly, we don't know anything. It is conjecture. I think it says something about the novelist or the filmmaker to explore why this conjecture like speaks to them. But what if it is? What if that is true? Mm -hmm. That's like tragic and really upsetting and is also maybe not enough for a three-hour movie, which sounds heartless to say, and I'm not trying to be heartless to the person or to the idea of trauma, but I do think increasingly we're coming to this in movies of there is a lot of, and and TV and art in general, books certainly. There's a great piece by Parl, Parl Siegel in the New York, in the New Yorker, because she moved from the New York Times to New Yorker, about like the trauma plot. And it keeps coming up. And it's not to deny the experiences of anyone involved, but it's like once you've done the therapy, then the art processing the therapy, I, there's just not that much room. Just narratively dead. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Exactly. And from the opening minutes, you're like, oh, this it's this kind of movie. Yeah. It's not going to improve from there. Exactly. Um, and that's the thing is the as her life becomes more glamorous, she continues to sink deeper and deeper. And you know, Ana de Armas is an incredibly likable screen presence. She mm-hmm. has the thing that we're constantly talking about on this show, which is like, she is open and she, we, you want to root for her. Yeah. She is like exciting to watch. She's obviously quite stunning, especially in this movie. Everything she pulls off in Knives Out is, yeah, 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 is you know, is uh, it's it's quite clear like why she's on the rise as a performer. But there's no, there's nowhere for her to go. There's no, there's not even really like any notes for her to play other than just like fear, sadness, and the the projection of trying to hold it together. In many scenes, she's trying to hold it together. And collapsing and shattering. Yeah. And she's good at that. But I mean, I think what for what? Well, I think one of the ways that the film is most effective, if unintentionally, is that you start to worry for her. And I don't mean this in a concern troll experiment, but you know, it was three hours. I had some time to think about the making of this movie while watching this movie. And I imagine that process. Yeah. And just hard work. Living in it every single day. And she, by all accounts, is not really a method actor and she had a great cover story in um, Variety by Dan D'Addario where she talks about, like, leaving it and not totally living in it. But she also says that um, she filmed No Time to Die, the Bond movie, after Blonde. And she talks about how Marilyn, the Marilyn character was kind of still with her. And you can kind of see it mm. in her No Time to Die performance, which... The glamour of it, you mean? And and I think the charisma and mm. a little bit the bubbliness and all of the things, frankly, that she wasn't allowed to do as Marilyn in yeah. this movie, which when you when you think about that scene, which we immediately compare to like a 30s screwball, like there is something really like vibrant about it. Um, she's great. And she wasn't allowed to do any of that in this movie. So it spills over into No Time to Die. Yeah, it's such, this movie is such a head scratcher for me because when it ended, I was impressed by certain aspects of it and the more I've thought about it and the more time I've spent re-watching Marilyn Monroe's films or reading about her Mm -hmm. life the more I'm just confounded about why everyone thought this was such a good idea I guess as far as um, as far as Anda Armas goes like is, is this like a an award-worthy performance? Is it like a notable... Like I'm, I'm, I guess I'm tr- what I'm trying to figure out is sort of like is this a movie that's just going to come and go? Because it's a movie that right. we've been hearing about for a long, long time and that has come under much controversy in part because, you know, it received an NC-17 rating and it, it does feature some, some not just disturbing but sexually explicit yeah. sequences throughout. Um, there's, as you pointed out here, multiple abortion sequences that are among the most, like, I, disturbing ever rendered. Yeah. I... Should we talk about that now? Yeah, sure. Because that's when it really tips over for me. And it's not the abortion sequences. I believe there are, and I can't believe we're counting like this, and I really edge into horrible, like a a corner of the internet I don't want to edge in when I'm like, I think there are two abortions and one lost pregnancy. And um, anyway, there are three just really like medical surgery room invasive, um, deeply upsetting scenes. And on the one hand, that is a reality of every woman's life and show it, I you know, or acknowledge it. On the other hand, I, it doesn't really feel like 
these scenes are being used to speak to the reality of what it means to be a a childbearing person. It they are just really, really digging in from a, and that was when I felt the fact that a man was making this film uh, more than any other point. I, I should also add that there is a, a talking fetus who, or or maybe three. I'm not really sure. I was so angry throughout all of them, and this is meant to communicate. Uh, Marilyn Monroe's sense of longing for a child and the loss that she feels as she's not able to have these children, whether for career reasons or her own reasons. Um, I thought that was just like conservative trash. I was like so offended by it. I, it was really, really, really uh, disgusting in my opinion. Yeah, the movie is this really messy blend of a f- feels like a few distinct influences that those sequences in particular feel very Terry Gilliam to me. They're almost like fantastical, but brutalist Mm -hmm. at the same time. And then there's obviously a massive Terrence Malick influence on this movie. There are like sequences where you're looking into the stars and the stars are moving and the evolution of life and the majestic power of the cosmos and the earth colliding and all of this kind of like way less elegantly handled Malickian uh, visual styling and then I, I just, I thought of Oliver Stone a lot. Yeah. Um, and as you know, I like Oliver Stone a lot. And Oliver Stone has made a couple of movies that I would name among my favorite movies, including JFK. Right. And it's not just that JFK is in this movie that I thought of JFK, but it's because of the big sweeping conclusions that JFK tends to make that I think are diverting from the truth at times. Yeah. But are also this like, bizarre psychological projection of a filmmaker talking about the death of a country, the death of an industry, the death of an American innocence. Like, Andrew Dominic is doing something very similar with Marilyn Monroe that JFK was doing with, um, that, with all, that Oliver Stone was doing with JFK, which is, like, kind of maybe sorting through his daddy issues. Um, and the idea of, like, dad ruined everything and I'm desperately reaching for dad and someone took dad away from me, which is just the most like facile psycho babble imaginable. And JFK was made 30, 25, 30 years ago. You know, like we're far past this in our culture. But JFK, the film also adds in just some, a huge amount of wild level conspiracy theory, governmental. It it is a movie about like capital A America. Now it's like a batshit crazy movie about America, but it it, it spans a lot. This is blonde is just daddy issues. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but it, it, it does do some things that are similar though. You know, one of the key two of the key characters in Blonde are Cass Chaplin and Eddie G. This is who, so weird. Who are these two? handsome, dashing young actors who meet Marilyn in an early stage in her career. We come to learn that they're Charles Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, and Edward G. Robinson's very handsome playboy sons. And they are sort of lovers or maybe just pals and consorts. And they envelop Marilyn into their world. And then they become this triad Mm -hmm. of sex and danger and passion. And as far as I can tell, that just never happened. (laughs) Like that, that those three people did not have a wild threesome love affair and were not enmeshed over a period of time. And they knew each other and maybe they were pals. And hell, maybe they even had sex. But this is like a bizarre invention in the middle of a movie that is otherwise trying to stick like very closely to this like sad script of this person's life. And it's just one more choice in a long line of choices that just feels kind of brain dead. It's like, are you trying to indicate that like these men sexually awakened this woman? And that is how she went on to like realize her power as the sex symbol of the time, but also they used and abused her the way that all men do. It's just, again, it's like a really simple-minded, lame plot device. I read it also as more daddy issues because they obviously have daddy issues. And then as as I believe Andrew Dominic himself points out in the deadline, piece in the middle of one of their so-called hot sex scenes, not hot at all. From Marilyn's perspective, you flash from the sex scene back to the poster of Charlie Chaplin that was in the apartment that she shared with her mother, like right next to this this shrine photo of her father. I... It's really weird. I don't get it. I mean, therapy has ruined art a little bit is where I am on this. Um, And therapy has been great for humans. And I'm 
benefit from therapy myself. So like no diss to therapy. But once you've worked it out, then when you don't need to work it out again in the art. And it's really pretty stupid. And this is kind of like peak version of that for me. A couple of more choice quotes from that interview that I found a little mm-hmm. frustrating or silly. One, is, you know, he said, my original idea was to do this for a serial killer. But when I read Blonde, I thought, well, I could do this with an actress and it should be slightly more sympathetic. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? How did you go from serial killer to Marilyn Monroe? It's really, really good. That's psycho behavior. Yeah. Uh, here's another one. I think if you're telling a story of an orphan child from within the fortress of the self, what you're looking to do is for her to retain her innocence. I think for that to happen, it's always got to feel like it's happening to her. Otherwise, you are asking her to accept responsibility, and this film is not asking her to accept any responsibility. I think that that can come across as a lack of agency, definitely. Okay. It, it does. Yeah. <laughs> It, because it is. This film is not asking her to... Wait, can I throw one more in that I texted you this morning? Yes. This is my favorite. The experience of life that was described, and I, I believe he's talking about the Darryl, Joyce Carol Oates novel, reminded me of the sort of things my girlfriends would say when they would describe their lives and their mythological take on their lives. I... I That's I actually just, dope. The in, mythological take it's incredible. on their lives. My girlfriends, plural, because he's had a few, because <laughs> none of them have worked out. I'm I'm not shocked. But just kind of like that passing, not even misogyny, but disinterest and lack of thought expressed in that quote is really extraordinary. And also, you know, reflects the opinion of this movie. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you want to save money this year, I have a simple, surefire way to do it. Switch to Mint Mobile. For a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Would I try to squeeze in an extra movie? Maybe try to read a book? The best way to squeeze that special thing in your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Big Picture today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Big Picture. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity, the unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. We can review the film and review all of the extant drama around the film. In this case, they feel very bound together because I'm I'm trying to continuously understand (laughs) why this movie was made. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, And it's an interesting object too because it's a you know it's a Netflix production, of course, Mm -hmm. and it's a very long film. And it it feels like he got final cut. One little wrinkle was that you know Jennifer Lame, the the great editor, was brought in at a certain point to look at this movie in part because it didn't seem like there were too many women involved in the production of the film at a high level and maybe Netflix expressed some concern about that and also because of course Andrew Dominic was cutting together what was going to be a very very long movie and I, I'm so curious to see how people receive this that was why I mentioned this sort of yeah. like will this just kind of come and go question because it's it's it, it's a fairly expensive movie 20-25 million dollars um, and it is very much meant to be for award season but there is a whole swath of voters across all the bodies who will watch the first 20 minutes of this and do exactly what you said, like just check out and be like, oh, this is not for me or this is way too traumatic to spend three hours with. So I don't know. It, it, it kind of could just be DOA or at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves or much like the Don't Worry Darling thing, like could be reclaimed pretty quickly too. Like I, it's all, here's the thing. It's going to be very, very divisive and some people will find the merit in it. I, I The more time goes by, the less merit I'm seeing. I mean, it's three hours at home. That's the thing. You can't turn it off. You and I, like, I couldn't walk out of the theater. And I I wasn't going to because 
I, I do this job for a living. But it's really hard to imagine people just pushing through the discomfort married with this sort of dreamy aimlessness of the project at home. I just, you know. and it's well put. And, and it's switching all of the, I think some of the visual flourishes that you and I thought worked on a big screen will work as affectation on a small screen. And maybe they worked it as affectation on a big screen. I don't know. But people are just going to be like, what's happening? And now it looks different. And I don't, I don't know where I am. And that I recognized that Marilyn outfit, but it was, you know, behind the screen for half a second. I, I just don't really think that enough people will power through it to, to have it be in the discourse. And that's before you get into some of the choices, both in terms of the interpretation and then I don't think the sex scenes will well, be, I don't know that enough people will get there to, to be scandalized by them. I mean, it's, it's not, it's titillating. No, you know, it's I, you know, it, it's obviously Anna Darmus is beautiful and she's taking her clothes off throughout the movie, but I, They're, it's upsetting. It's not ravishing, you yeah. know, it's just, and it's not meant to be. And so like I saw Anna Darmus had a quote going around over the weekend about how frustrated she was by the idea of like the internet kind of grabbing those images yeah, and spreading yeah, them yeah, around yeah. the way that they always do when an actress makes a choice like this. But, um, I don't know. That's not like a that was that wasn't even something that crossed my mind when I sat down right. to watch the movie. And it, the, the movie doesn't play it to I guess to its credit, it doesn't really it doesn't really take advantage of her or that in any meaningful way. But that wouldn't be like an incentive to stick around. You know, it's like she's going to take her clothes off. Like no, who cares? Not um, at all. I don't know. This is a very odd movie. What do you think of the other performances? You know, it's like two some well known actors playing some well known people in sure. this movie. Bobby Cannavale plays. Joe DiMaggio, mm-hmm. and Adrian Brody plays Arthur Miller. What do you think of them as the two husbands? Adrian Brody is really just having the time of his life right now. Showing up for 20 to 30 minutes in some highbrow entertainment. Always just impeccably dressed. Really, production design seems to be a, and, and costume design seems to be a major incentive for him. <laughs> and I, great. Keep he's, it up, sir. Yeah. He's very good in this. He's yeah, a very he's good really Arthur Miller. Good. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Um, Bobby Cannavale doesn't have that much to do. I don't know. Yeah, I wish they gave him a little more. Um, that is similarly one note to the rest of the story. Yeah. Not that Joe DiMaggio is necessarily the ideal husband. He definitely was not. No. But we get 10 minutes of screen time, and it's mostly brutal. Yeah. Um, and and Julianne Nicholson, who you mentioned, plays her mother. Those are really the big significant parts in the film. Julianne Nicholson is a very gifted actor who is often cast as a crazy woman. Mm-hmm. Um I feel sad for her in that respect. I want yeah, more for her. Too. You know, I think she's yeah. she's capable of more, worthy of more. The last time I saw her was in um, Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. You know? Well, she's not crazy in that. But well, the, there's something yeah, a little unhinged is, about I that character. I she's very good in Mayor of Easttown, but She is. Upsetting. She's always very good. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, what what else is there to... I, I, I want to talk a lot about Marilyn and kind of like yeah. what this movie gets well, right and doesn't get right. The other thing that you and I talked about after the screening was just the sort of the sad white lady horror story mm-hmm. approach. And this is very reminiscent recently of Pablo Reyes, Jackie, and really Spencer mm-hmm. to me. I think Jackie is the most effective of this little trilogy. But just basically, oh, she's famous and beautiful. And, you know, that just means that she has to be subjected to nightmares for the duration of the movie. And you as a horror viewer seem to have a little bit more patience for that? Well, it's that very complicated dance that I'm trying to navigate through this conversation of well-made versus good. And Pablo Lorraine is very gifted, and he's very good at creating a sense of atmosphere and dread. And that's part of what worked for me about Spencer was that if we were trying to get into the psychology of this person, and maybe it's because that film takes place over a very short period of Mm -hmm. time, that it's a little easier for me to accept this was a nightmarish Christmas holiday right. for Diana, as opposed to this was a nightmarish 36 consecutive years <laughs> for Marilyn Monroe, which is what this movie is. You know, it's yeah. her entire life really rendered on screen for three hours. Um, I, you know, I mean, three movies made by men. Yeah. You know, like I just Maybe don't... not the most sensitive portrayals of femininity and that experience. I I mean, I think they're reductive, which I guess everything is reductive at some point. That's in a lot of ways what movie making is about, picking and choosing. But I just don't think this approach works for me. And I I, I think it's really limiting, not just in its understanding of women or its understanding of 
of fame, which mm-hmm. plays a role in all of these and is a really interesting topic for me and one that I think Blonde in particular leaves entirely on the table. Just like 100% what role, like her success and the the highs that the movie declines to show played in her understanding of herself and her relationship to other people, what it says about the world at large or certainly America at that time or our ideas of fame. That, that to me is a really rich text that most people think they're above. But I don't think that this idea of like, oh, we made her, you know, we ruined her life. Again, I, I think that's probably factually true in all three cases. I think that it, it can be really corrosive. And I also think that these are three women who went through genuinely traumatic experiences that we know of. So I don't mean to diminish it either, but this casting them in a horror movie, I think, does remove all agency and just victimizes to the point that it doesn't portray a real sense of the person or even the experience. Yeah, there is a there is a fine line between two of these three movies, which is that Jackie and Spencer are about states people. You know, mm-hmm. they're about politicians, for lack of a better word. You know, a member of the royal family, the first lady. They're people who um, were, weren't artists. Uh, Marilyn Monroe was an artist. She was an actress and right. like a star. And, you know, it's easy to kind of reduce what that means. But she was an artistic person. She studied with Lee Strasberg. You yeah. know I mean? She was, she was in New York studying acting in the 50s and 60s. So she was present for this extraordinary shift in the artistic culture that we now like that resonates constantly in our, in our lives now. So there's just a lot to say about that. And we get a little bit of it. We get like that one scene where she reads um, for Arthur Miller and he has this kind of like dawning Mm -hmm. moment where he realizes he's in love with her because she becomes his imagined manifestation of a character that he wrote and a woman that he was once in love with as a young man. And that was the only time in the movie where I was like, there's a little bit more of an idea here about like the, intoxicating effect that she had on people and the way that her talent could like transform the country. Right. You know, and maybe that too is like hackneyed. And if it was three hours of that, it would have been too much. But I was like, this is at least something. something. Yeah. And that's something that like, you know, Jackie and Diana were also people who inspired, like they inspired people and they were very powerful and they kind of like communicated a kind of greatness and and an intelligence. But it, it was different. Like, it, it wasn't... They were famous, but it wasn't the same as when you are making art all the time. Yeah. And Jackie has that framing device of... Jackie is portrayed by Natalie Portman is speaking to a reporter. Mm-hmm. And it's about managing this idea of Camelot, which confronts all of these issues that we're talking about, right. like, head on. And kind of thus plays with the idea of the Jackie Kennedy that you knew and the Jackie Kennedy behind the scenes. So, and And that's why I think it's the most effective of the three for me. Me too. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we need this approach anymore. I agree. I don't I don't think we need to do this. I mean, especially because I'm not sure if you could pick three more iconic women of, from the 20th century <laughs> right. to make these this kind of a movie about, right? So we yeah. we did it. Yeah. We're all set. <laughs> Got it. No more of these. Um Yeah. It's very strange. What's your relationship to Marilyn Monroe the person? The issue is that probably more her as an image, her as a scene from a movie, movie. I can imagine the outfits. I can imagine, you know, the the voice for sure. I can imagine the presence. There are a few iconic roles. Um, to me, she's much more of a comedian than a dramatic actor, which makes this like complete dirge of a movie a lot, you know, even more maybe not contradictory but weird. And but, but I don't think of her as like a Meryl Streep, who's well. I guess Meryl, I think of more as Meryl than like her, you know, great movies. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, a presence. But she's a she's a presence more than a filmmaking. You know, not a lot of great movies. A few great movies. She's she has a a couple of iconic parts, and yeah. she's also appeared in a couple of unforgettable all time classics. Right, and she also consistently worked with great filmmakers. I mean, she probably only made 20 movies, really 25 movies in her career, in her very short career. I mean, I just made a list off the top of my head. I know she made movies with Billy Wilder, Otto Preminger, Lawrence Olivier directed her and starred with her, John Huston twice, mm-hmm. George Cukor, Howard Hawks, and Joseph L. Mankiewicz. 
Yeah. That's 10 of the 25 most important filmmakers right. of her era. Um, and part of that was because people, they sought her out because she was a box office draw. And at, by, the, by the late 1950s, she became arguably the biggest star in all of Hollywood. Um, and certainly the most desired woman in America, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Her gifts as an actor are really interesting. Like, I went back and I watched a couple of her more dramatic movies uh, over the last few days. She definitely has something. She has, like, I think she is underrated in terms of, like, the kind of composure and grace that she had as an actor because she was really funny and because she was she had this kind of appealing singing voice, so she's constantly being asked to sing. I mean, the person who I thought of a lot when I was watching her movies, it's, and it's relevant because there was also a movie about him this year, is Elvis Presley. Mm. Because Elvis Presley made a lot of movies, most of them not very good, but in some of those movies, especially those early movies, you look at him and you're like, what if Howard Hawks got his arms around him? Or what if Vincent Minnelli got his arms around him? What kind of a movie would we get? Like, could he have been one of the, if not one of the great actors, one of the great screen idols of all time, instead of like, consistently in this kind of junk that is only leveraging what we already know what we like about him right. as opposed to challenging him to do something new. And I feel very similarly about her. I watched a movie last night called River of No Return that I'd never seen before. I don't know if you've seen this one. I haven't one. seen this one. So it's Otto Preminger. Um, it's a Robert Mitchum movie. Uh, he's about a man who you know shows up in a mining town to s- retrieve his nine-year-old son. And when he gets there, there's a woman in town who is like sort of like a showgirl slash acoustic guitar singer. Okay. And she's sort of singing for the men in the tents at the trading post. And then she, you know, her husband is also there and that's why she's there. And then they all go off on a journey and then they end up going down down to like a wooden raft down a river that's like a very dangerous river, the River of No Return. There's this great theme song that she sings in part in the movie. And there are big sequences of the movie that are just her and Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. And she's going toe-to-toe with him. And she's, you know, she's tough and she's, you know... um, she has a kind of fierce dependence. And it's one of the only movies that she got to make where she wasn't playing like the dame. She wasn't playing like the silly showgirl. It's a real part. Right. It's not a great part, but it's not a bad part. And she's it's interesting because obviously she died so tragically at 36. She overdosed or maybe perhaps committed suicide. It's still unclear from barbiturates. And so she never really got a chance to challenge herself too many times as an actor. And as Elvis the same way. He died young. Yeah. He kind of stopped making movies by the mid-60s, late 60s. And so we don't really know. And so, like, analyzing her career is a little bit challenging. Because, like, she's in All About Eve. Yeah. You know, but she, she plays, you know, she has one or two scenes and she is... Her looks and her presence are a major part of what she's doing. And that's true of her comedies and, and all of these roles. And, you know, another reason that I think the 10 of the greatest you know, classic Hollywood directors worked with her is because she was, like, an extraordinarily, like, beautiful but, like, unique visual, like, presence. And so to have this, like, new quantity in your movie... It was like casting the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you wonder what that evolves into. It's funny, even her comedy is, like, a little understated. We have this idea of, like, the dumb blonde, but she's not, like, doing full... 10 out of 10 energy there is something like she's not Jane Mansfield yeah like coiled a little um, that's really interesting I agree and can lend itself to more than just those ditzy roles but and she even plays like the dits with a little bit of dignity for lack of a better word you know that all about Eve part where she's kind of carted around and it's almost like this manifestation of her rise to fame where it's sort of like you need to charm the producer and get next to the screenwriter and work the system if you want to have a career in Hollywood and it's this very kind of like acid dipped Mm self-aware portrayal that you know in its way is kind of poetic now when we think about the arc of her life and also is part of what makes all about Eve so good is that it so clearly understands Hollywood, just like 30 years into Hollywood's history, it's already got its arms totally around what it means to become mm-hmm. famous in this world. Um, but she, I, I, I agree with what you said, the, the sort of like understated comedian yeah. approach to it. Another one of the movies that I watched yesterday was Bus Stop, which I had seen a while ago, which is not a good movie. <laughs> um, but I think might feature her best performance because it's her least Marilyn performance. She's not platinum blonde in the movie. Um, she plays a Southern girl and her accent is pretty good. Like okay. she loses it a couple of times, but for the most part, she sticks with it. And she's also kind of a showgirl slash singer because right. she can sing. And so they you keep putting what? her if in front of works. audiences. Yeah. Um, but it's all about this 
cowboy who's kind of relentlessly pursuing her throughout the movie and it's kind of like awkward and uncomfortable throughout the film but her resistance to him is part of what makes the movie effective and feels like the movie itself feels like an outright rejection of everything that we see in the movie blonde it's sort of like this isn't a person who only did gentlemen prefer blondes like that that's not accurate right you know that's that isn't actually the totality of her career like there's no mention of the misfits in this movie there's no mention of like her striving to be a deeper artist. It's not, I. so I, I find myself really confused by this. Right. It, the idea thinks that, it, the movie thinks that it has a richer idea of Marilyn Monroe, but really it only understands her as, you know, the pink dress in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend right. kind of marauding in the back of the screen. And it's not, certainly not interested in her skills. No, not at all. I mean, I don't know. What Do you remember the first time that you saw her? I, I think it had to be something like it hot, mm-hmm. right? Which is just her best performance. I think her best movie, like the Billy Wilder classic, and she's going toe to toe with Jack Lemmon. And um, it, it's funny, but it's not, it, it's a little, pulls at the heartstrings a little. There, that is I, her best part, a little more layered. Um, and then I think I must have known Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, like the song before I ever saw it. But her in the pink dress is just the first thing that I think of. Well, I feel like Madonna's yeah, recreation that of that part too. Of you know, like she has, she has been kind of memed yes. since before we had memes. You know, yeah. she was like so iconic and representational. And that's what, 1987 when that video came out? 1986, right. something like that. And by then, we're 20 years past maybe 25 years past that film. But she has like that very hot period in the in the early 1950s where she's in How to Marry a Millionaire, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, both movies with Jane Russell. Mm-hmm. And then she's in Niagara that year too, which is this like really hot, overheated yeah. color noir, <laughs> which is, I love this movie. I think it's such a good movie, but it's so uh, like of its era, yeah. you know, where it's like, she is the dame and there's like dramatic sequences where like the shades open and you see Marilyn Monroe smoking <laughs> a cigarette in all her glory. Um, and she is like the reason that everything goes haywire in the movie, obviously, but it's really effective. You know, she's like, she's well used in that part. Um, and so she has that period where she's like on the rise and is the movies are starting to get built around her. And then she kind of falls out for a couple of years. So she gets married once. The marriage ends within a year. She gets married again. She gets she stays married to Arthur Miller for a few years there. They made it four or five years. In the process of that, he starts writing The Misfits for her. John Huston, who directed her, all the way back in the Asphalt Jungle in 1950, one of her first parts, takes on this Arthur Miller script. It's Clark Gable. It's Monty Clift. Mm-hmm. It's Marilyn Monroe. Arthur Miller writes the screenplay. Yeah. And it's, it's okay. an interesting mm-hmm. movie that is not really Definitely. a success. Yeah. Um, and it is way more like impressionistic than any other John Huston movie. And the story is a little bit hard to follow. She is kind of ravishing as she's entering like, you know, not quite middle age, but you can kind of see her like turning the corner on her beauty in a way. I always, I'm see, watching that movie, I always wanted to know what, who she would be in her 40s. Like I right. always liked, um, I, w- I always liked Ava Gardner. And Ava Gardner, as she started to get older, she started to like actually age. And she started taking on more parts. Like she wasn't, there was no plastic surgery. She wasn't right. desperately trying to hold on to her her glamour. And she would play 52-year-old women who were married to 58-year-old men in movies. Right. And, and they a, made movies about 52-year-old yes, men and women. They kept casting her. And she was damn good in those movies. And there was a part of me that always wanted to see Marilyn Monroe do stuff like that. But there's this sensation when you go back and you look at her work, even though she's in some like it hot, like you say, one of, you know, literally one of the hundred best American movies ever made that's still like I wish I could have seen what else she would do because she she had talent it's all tinged now right knowing the the end of the movie and I think this is this contributes to Blonde's failure but it's also impossible to resist is like you can't watch any of this stuff without knowing the end of Marilyn Monroe's story and that there is this not just lost potential, but sort of, you know, a little bit of tragedy Mm -hmm. or just reserve running through all of it. And I think that is 100% projection, but I don't know. We were born 30 years after, or 20 years 
after Marilyn Monroe died. So mm-hmm. you can only receive her and understand her in that way. I know, but that's that's sort of what obviates the movie for me. Yeah. I'm like, I, I know. She died tragically. <laughs> you don't have to tell she me. She had a horrible life. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. <laughs> I, 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 I'm having a harder and harder time the more I plunge into the psychology of the film, trying to understand if there's any psychology in the film. There's not. It's just, it's a sentence that is stretched into a three-hour movie. Do you think this movie would be more successful if it were a more traditional movie length? Not really. I don't either. I, I It's actually, I, di- I didn't find the the length itself punishing. Obviously, I don't mind long movies. Um, the the first hour, though, which is really tough because it's the, the childhood. So, I mean, it's not fun watching a child of any age go through that stuff. Pivoting almost directly into a, an and a brutal sexual assault. Yes. I mean, like, and like that is returned to as a flashback throughout mm-hmm. the film in a way that is like, again, why? Like, we know, we know that this was very painful. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I don't really get it. But that first hour, my heart really sank because I was like, oh, two more hours of this. Uh, and this is just, I know how it's going to end and it's not going to be great. Wouldn't that have been great if he was just like twist? She lived to be 87 years old. She won 12 Academy Awards. You know, like I would have enjoyed a reimagining of some kind. Maybe that's the thing is I wanted more stretching, more imagination. Like to just do like a little bit that only serves your one note psychological pursuit. It's lame. What book did I read recently that does that? It's like, what if this person that you love and I mean, a lot of, a lot of I mean, a man in a high castle is, Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I know they all do it. But it was somewhere. It's like, you know, this person died, but instead they didn't have a tragic death and they lived forever. And I can't remember what it was now. It didn't really work. It's <laughs> it's a nice idea to like give someone back like all of this time that they didn't have. But I was thinking about Dominic and <laughs> his, his final answer in that interview that we've cited a couple of times was uh, to the question, what do you want to do next? Is uh, <laughs> I'd like to make a film about the Afghan war. Incredible <laughs> kicker. Super funny. Listen, I don't know whether you can Brother, this, you just did. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, the intentionality behind this interview, but great copy. It's whatever he thought he was doing, it's great copy. Um, how do you measure whether something like this worked or not in this age of streaming films? You know, because it's it is an art film. Oh, you mean literally, as opposed to whether you and I thought it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously we didn't think it was successful. It, and it's not very successful. And I think it's gonna get some pretty negative notices. Yeah. But there are some things to recommend about it. Um, obviously on Arm like on Armas could be nominated. It's a pretty crowded best actress field. There's the all the controversy last week about Michelle Williams you know, signing up to be Best Actress in The Fablemans, a film we have not seen, so right. can't even really comment on. But a lot of the scuttlebutt about that was sort of like, this is already a loaded category. Mm-hmm. Can Anna Dharma squeeze her way in? Presumably not because the movie will turn off so many viewers. Yeah. But if if it doesn't, if it gets blanked come award season, how do you even know, did this work? I mean, I know there's viewing hours, and but this isn't going to top Netflix's viewing top 10, right? And it doesn't even seem like it, those numbers will be released. I mean, Netflix is not presenting this as like a world conquering, yep. you know, our investment in the future of cinema. I, it's pretty much being presented as a, like, this was a three year struggle and now, you know, good luck. But, yeah. but uh, the generous marketing is like, we still spend money on like interesting, challenging projects, which I think means we'll just like never hear about it again. Do you think that they will continue to do that? This is, we've still not seen white noise. Right. We've still not seen a couple more of their bigger films. I'll tell you, I watched a Netflix movie last night um, that is coming out in early October called The Redeem Team. Okay. It's a documentary about the 2008 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, which had come off, if you include the FIBA tournament, three consecutive losses. Mm. um, And so was redeeming U.S. men's basketball. And it's just a documentary about how Kobe, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony all came together to reclaim greatness in the face of NBA or uh, world basketball. And it's right down the middle. And it's, I watched all those games. So I, nothing was surprising or interesting, but I was like, this is great. This is 90 minutes just going down like a tall glass of lemonade. Is this the team that Juliet really loved or was that 2012 with all of the the good footage? I presume it's, that's 2012. Okay. Um, Sounds nice. I've heard of all those people. But I was like, this is the future of Netflix to me, not blonde. I I was watching it. I rewatched 
well, not rewatched. I turned on about 30 minutes of uh, Do Revenge at your recommendation. Oh, yeah. What'd you think of that? And also because it's like starting to percolate on the internet. Number the one on Letterboxd coming. this weekend. Oh, was it? Well, yeah. That doesn't mean anything to me. But I was like, <laughs> it I It says should... something, though. Yeah. and But there were like blog posts about it or whatever. So I turned it on. First thing I noticed was that the runtime is two hours, which just cut your movies. You know, no teen comedy should be longer than 90 minutes. But one of my favorite things about Netflix is it's like 11 minutes of credits. So if you see two hours, it's 149. Okay, still okay. 90 minutes. That's still long. And we're out. And 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 I do have the experience now. I've seen the two hours and being like, uh-oh. Um, I liked what I saw. Again, I saw 30 minutes and I was like, this is cool. I can revisit it later yeah. or I'm not I'm pro-Camilla Mendes too. I feel like she could be, some, if put in the right hands, could be some, yeah. a thing. So in the sense of like, oh, I heard about this. I'm curious. I'll turn it on. I'll leave it. Like maybe we'll chat a little bit. I'll read a blog post. Totally worked, which is maybe their model. I, I don't think that Blonde fits into that model. Yeah. I don't know how you sell this movie. So maybe it does. Maybe people watch 30 minutes, fire off some angry tweets, or you know, send have a conversation about it. I mean, there is a class of movie viewer who still likes watching things and getting mad on Letterboxd. How's it doing on Letterboxd? Bl- the film Blonde? Yes. Let's take a look in real time. Okay, wow, this it, is exciting. This will be a fun experience. I mean, it, it is the kind of film when I fire it up, you know, I look at my friends and it's mm-hmm. like one star, one and a half stars, yeah. four and a half stars, one star. You know, like it is, it's divisive. Okay. And there is so much craft in it that people will love it. It currently has an average of 2.9. Okay. Which isn't good. Yeah. This film will not have a cinema score because it's not playing in enough movie sure. theaters to render one. This feels like it has a it would have had a real shot at an F. Right. There have not been very many Fs in the history of cinema score. It could have been. Don't worry, darling, had a B minus this weekend, which indicated that um it's gonna have a tough second week. Yes. Uh any any were you surprised by nineteen point five million opening weekend? Was no, that I think normal? that was pretty much right on okay. the money, right? Of what people expected and the Harry Styles fans turned out. I will say in my group of text message chats, my group chats that could all be named, you know, cool women approaching 40. Uh, the and the, the reports and or anticipation for this movie is still very high. So for I, Blonde? No, for Don't Worry Darling. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the people who saw it didn't mm-hmm. like, thought it was stupid, but had a great time. Okay. And the people who haven't seen it yet are like really excited to go see it. So maybe that's the second week. I, there's no awareness for Blonde among the cool women approaching 40, as best I can tell. Do you think you'll ever watch it again? No. Okay. What do you think? Should Olivia Wilde and Andrew Dominic together make a <laughs> film about the Afghan war? Yes, because we need stuff to talk about on this podcast. Yeah. This is, I definitely won't be watching Blonde again. No. Which is a shame because I find Assassination of Jesse James and Killing Them Softly in particular very rewatchable. Um, assassination is slower and it's much more of a visual feast. Um, Killing Them Softly is a, is a ride. It's like a rollicking crime movie with a lot of ridiculous stuff. And it is, upon reflection, the stuff that I thought was really funny about that movie. For example, two guys getting really high on heroin to the mm-hmm. strains of the song Heroin by Vel- 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 the Velvet Underground. <laughs> now, when I think back on that scene, I'm like, maybe this wasn't as self-knowing and funny as I think it is. <laughs> maybe this was an artistic choice that is really dumb and leaden. Anyhow. Yeah. Blonde, any final thoughts? Not great. Just not, not great. I guess, interest, not interesting. That's the, that's the other thing. I don't think it gets partial credit. Do you give it partial credit? I do. I do, Why? unfortunately. Well, there's just like a couple sequences that are pretty visually breathtaking. Okay, um, but... Her, like the driving through the fire, the forest on fire. And I guess so. there's the, um, I mean, the the moment leading up to the JFK moment is pretty harrowing and effective. By then, they've kind of bludgeoned you to death, but it's like right. the sort of like um, that conspiracy thriller feeling that you're getting as that's happening is pretty intense. I don't know. It's it's like it's a it's a two star it's a two out of five you know it's like you did a couple of good things but it's mostly unpleasant. I just think this film and then also don't worry, darling, have taught us that it's not enough to look good, especially if you're making an ideas movie. It really they really really fall flat on the ideas. Well, I agree with you. We can wrap it up there. Okay. More ideas to talk about later this week. Uh, we're talking about Bros. Oh yeah, which is a perhaps the ultimate profound opposite of Blonde. A studio rom-com, the first ever LGBTQ mainstream rom-com 
opening R-rated. wide. Yeah. That we've ever had, right? I think so. Co- I, co-written and starring Billy Eichner. Yes, directed by Nicholas Dollar. Who'll be on the show. Um, it'll be a fun conversation. I'm excited. We're also going to share, I think, I think our top five 21st century comedies. And I started to make my list last night and this I was is, like, this, this is hard. This is hard. Yeah. I know we think it's dead, but if you're, we're going all the way back to 2000, right? Back to 2000. Yeah, so there's plenty to work with. So many movies. My right. honorable mention had like 30 movies okay. on it. Co- comedy, not dead? Um, No, I think it's dead, but that's okay. Okay. Well, thanks to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode. And yeah, we'll see you later this week when we talk about bros. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.